0: You're listening to the second and final part of Unexplained, Season 7, Episode 8, Walking on Snow. In early February, 1954, a man in a silk cravat, golfing jacket and plimsolls, strode confidently toward a small village of tents, erected in the yak pastures of the upper Dude Cozy Valley, about 14,000 feet up in the Himalayas the man was british foreign correspondent ralph isard and walking alongside him were numerous mountaineers ornithologists zoologists and fellow journalists as well as 370 nepalese porters as they arrived anthropologist charles stoner welcomed them isard waved back his greeting then took a moment to catch his breath and fished inside his jacket for his cigarette case. He motioned for the porters carrying all his things to go ahead and set up his tent. Then he lit up a cigarette and gazed out at the surrounding mountains, dusted white with snow. The Daily Mail's yeti hunting expedition had well and truly arrived. Their mission was to find substantive physical evidence of a yeti, and if possible capture one and bring it to the UK After settling in to what would be their home for the next three months the team promptly set about devising a plan Since their quarry was supposedly a scarce solitary creature maybe seen only once or twice by people who lived their entire lives in these mountains they decided to venture out in two person teams each with local porters and guides to cover as much ground as possible And so, day after day, equipped with huge tranquilizer guns, they clambered across miles of broken rocky slopes and boulder-filled depressions, doggedly waiting out periods of foggy weather and periodic snowstorms. The higher terrain was still covered in a blanket of snow, excellent conditions, they thought, for finding fresh yeti tracks. But it was tough going. Members of the team, who were not seasoned mountaineers, like Charles Stoner, found themselves feeling shorter and shorter of breath with every hundred feet they trudged above the camp. In late February, Ralph Izzard, now dressed more appropriately, and American naturalist Gerald Russell, arrived at a deserted summer grazing village. According to their Sherpa guide, Sirdar Ang Shering, Yeti tracks had been seen there by locals just a few days earlier. After failing to find any evidence of them for themselves, the men decided to set up camp for the night. Setting off early the next morning, the men were crossing a slope covered in deep snow on the shaded side of the valley at around 15,000 feet When sharing, began gesturing excitedly. There in front of them was a single line of tracks, about 9 inches long and 5 inches wide, with a stride length of just over 2 metres, heading down the valley. Despite some melting and drifting, having slightly obscured the footprints, there was enough detail to reveal one big toe and at least three smaller ones. Almost identical to the prints that Eric Shipton had photographed in 1951. The Sherpas, Ralph Izzard and Gerald Russell, followed the tracks up the slopes where there was continuous snow cover and across a small plateau. On the plateau's farthest rim, the footprints became confused and seemed to be joined by a second set of tracks. Some of those tracks on the rim appeared to be smaller leading the team to wonder if perhaps they were of a parent and child. The team continued to follow what they believed now to be two sets of tracks made at the same time and heading in the same direction over two consecutive days for a distance of around eight miles. Placed just under four metres apart, at one point the tracks divided either side of a large boulder, Clear evidence, the men thought, that two bipeds had passed that way together. As they continued, Izzard tripped over a ridge of hardened snow and pitched headlong into the snowdrift. A little embarrassed, he struggled back to his feet, then smiled at the sight of another deep impression in the snow next to him. Clearly, one of the creatures they were tracking had done exactly the same thing as him, From there, it appeared to have sat down on the snow and slid down the rest of the slope on its backside before rising and continuing again on two feet. Whatever these creatures were, they seemed to use human-made paths with the utmost caution and often made lengthy detours around huts or other structures that might be inhabited by humans. To Izzard and Russell, This painted a captivating picture of a creature determined to avoid being seen, let alone caught. The expedition took photos of the tracks, but despite continuing the search deep into the surrounding snowy slopes, they failed to find any tangible evidence to present to their sponsors. Meanwhile, Charles Stoner was dispatched to follow up on another lead back down into the village of Pangboche, where it was rumoured that the monastery there contained a yeti scalp. As Stoner and his guide made their way down a winding path, through glades of birch trees and rhododendrons, in the distance they heard the sound of ceremonial conch-shell trumpets booming out from the monastery across the valley. When they eventually arrived in the village, Stoner was dismayed to find it seemingly lifeless since most of the inhabitants had gone away trading. After much searching, he and his guide eventually found an elderly man who looked after the monastery's temple. With the help of his guide, Stoner persuaded him to find the key and let them in. After stoner laid offerings at the temple altar, the elderly man disappeared into a deep cupboard, housing ornaments for sacred dances, and returned moments later with a garish-looking object. Conical in shape and sparsely covered with stiff, thick, bristle-like hairs that were foxy red and black, the man explained earnestly that the scalp was over 300 years old and was only brought out once a year, when it was worn by a dancer personifying the Yeti. Stoner was unimpressed, however. To his mind, it looked more like it had been cut from an animal skin, then fashioned to fit a person's head. Nonetheless, he took some photographs and a few hair samples, which he then sent to London for analysis. The verdict when it came was that the scalp was indeed quite old, but that this was not a true scalp at all, but rather, as stoner had suspected, a piece of skin cut from the shoulder of some indeterminate animal. Another two such scalps were later tracked down by the expedition, but were similarly disregarded. After fifteen weeks of gruelling searching, the Daily Mail's expedition came to an end, with only photographs of footprints, the alleged yeti scalps, and a few bristly hair samples to show for all their efforts. For the next several decades, explorers from Britain, America, Russia and beyond would arrive periodically in Nepal and other parts of the Himalayas to search for the yeti. The monasteries housing the apparent scalps became places of pilgrimage for many yeti hunters, desperate for physical proof of the creature's existence. Among them were members of a 1958 expedition funded by explorer Tom Slick, a Texan oilman who'd assembled a team including several mountaineers, a photographer, a filmmaker and Irish brothers Peter and Brian Byrne. Naturalist Gerald Russell, veteran of the 54 Daily Mail expedition, was the team's deputy leader. As with the previous expedition, this team split into small groups and hold themselves up in caves in the middle of alleged yeti country for extended periods of observation, during which they claim to have seen yeti tracks, but no yetis. Like Charles Stoner before him, Peter Byrne of Tom Slick's expedition visited the monasteries to inspect their alleged yeti scalps. Some who'd seen them were convinced that they were single pieces of skin, with no traces of stitches or glue, with hair that did not match any known animal. But Peter Byrne was not impressed, noting that it was well known in Nepal that one of them, taken from the Kumjung Monastery, was an accepted fake it was believed to be made around 15 years earlier by a Tibetan taxidermist who was jealous of all the attention that the Lamas at Pangboche, the teachers of Buddhism who reside at the monastery, were getting with their yeti scalp. When Byrne then visited the Pangbocce monastery, unlike Stoner, he was shown something else alongside the scalp. What looked like the large, mummified hand of an unknown primate as the monks explained. Many years ago, one of them had climbed to a high cave to meditate, but they'd encountered a yeti there and soon made a rapid return to the village. When the monk went back to the cave a few days later, he found the yeti was dead and so decided to remove its scalp and hand. Looking at it now, Byrne could see it was unusually large around twice the size of a large human hand, and about four times bigger than the average hand size of the local people. Byrne told Tom Slick about the relics, and Slick in turn relayed the news to a Professor William Hill, a primatologist at the Royal College of Surgeons' Ontarian Museum back in London. Slick and Hill desperately wanted the hand, but the monks refused to give it to them, believing it would bring disaster to the temple if it was ever removed. Reports of what happened next diverge. In a letter written to mountaineer Mike Alsop, Byrne claimed to have made a donation to the temple in exchange for the Lama's permission to take one finger and replace it with another finger bone from a human hand, which he happened to have brought with him in a paper bag. Others say that Byrne and Slick got the monks drunk one evening, giving Byrne enough time to secretly steal one of the relic's fingers and wire in a substitute bone in its place. Either way, Byrne did smuggle a finger from the Pangboccia hand, along with a piece of the leathery mummified skin taken from the palm across the Nepalese border into India. The real problem then was getting the items from India to London without being caught by customs. While travelling, Byrne received a cable from Tom Slick, instructing him to make his way to Calcutta, where Slick had arranged a meeting with his friends, the American movie star Jimmy Stewart, and his wife Gloria, who happened to be holidaying in India at the time. Convinced that customs officials would never examine the underwear of a famous woman, the finger and skin fragment, were then hidden in Gloria Stewart's lingerie case, which indeed was never opened. Despite all that, when the relics finally made it to Professor Hill in London, he concluded that they were most likely human in origin. In 1960, the now knighted Sir Edmund Hillary, who, along with Tenzing Norgay, was one of the first people to reach the summit of Mount Everest, received funding to make another expedition to the Himalayas, this time to find evidence of the Yeti. Not aware of what Byrne had done the previous year, Hillary judged the Pangboche hand to also be an unconvincing combination of human and animal bones wired together. Unlike Byrne, Hillary succeeded in getting permission to take the Kumjung Monastery's scalp away to be analysed. When cryptozoologist Bernard Heuvelmans first examined the scalp, he thought it appeared genuine. He eventually concluded that the alleged yeti scalp had in fact been made by stretching some skin from a Himalayan tar, an animal halfway between a goat and an antelope over a mould. There was no suggestion that either the Kumjung or Pangbocha scalps had been made deliberately to hoax outsiders. They'd been created several centuries previously to represent the yeti in temple rituals. It was most likely that their true origins had simply been forgotten over the centuries, with subsequent monks coming to assume that they were genuine yeti scalps. As for the finger bone from the Pangbocha hand, After Professor Hill's examination of it in 1954, it subsequently disappeared. It later resurfaced in 2008 when a box in the Hunterian Museum was found to contain the 9cm long finger fragment left to the museum as part of a bequest from Hill. In 2011, the finger was analysed by the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland During the making of a BBC documentary about the Yeti, its DNA was found to be human. A few years later, one bright and sunny morning, Professor Brian Sykes and his two research assistants sat in his study in Oxford, staring at two white envelopes on the table in front of them. Inside the envelopes were the results of DNA testing that had just come back from the lab the results of thousands of miles of travel, months of intense lab work, and the hopes of cryptozoologists across the world. Back in 1989, Sykes, a genetics professor from Oxford University, had developed a new technique for retrieving and analysing DNA from ancient bones. But it wasn't until 2013 that he and his team perfected the method for extracting DNA from hair samples. They proceeded to collect various samples for testing, including those thought to come from Russia's version of the Yeti, called the Almasty, as well as North America's Bigfoot and potential Yeti hairs from Ladakh in northern India on the west side of the Himalayas and Bhutan, 800 miles away to the east. Could this advance in DNA technology confirm that these large hairy hominids including the yeti really existed once and for all after taking deep breaths professor sykes and his team tore open the envelopes as they looked from one result to the next every dna result showed the hares to all be from well-known animals. One of the potential yeti hares was revealed to be a Himalayan brown bear, a rare subspecies that lives in small, isolated populations in the remote higher reaches of the Himalayas. The common name of this bear in Nepalese is tzu or cattle bear, and it has long been associated with yeti stories. More intriguingly, The sample from Ladakh was also found to be a Himalayan brown bear. It was the same story once again in 2017 when Professor Dr. Charlotte Linkvist and her team at the University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences analysed the mitochondrial DNA of nine samples of purported Yeti parts, this time gathered by a crew making a film about the creature. Eight of the nine samples were from local bears. One was an Asian black bear, another a Himalayan brown, and six were the Tibetan brown bear. The ninth sample was from a dog. Once again, serious doubt was cast on more than a century of supposed yeti sightings. Over the decades, encounters between explorers and possible yetis have continued, British mountaineer Don Willans was a fervent believer, claiming he encountered the yeti while scaling Annapurna, the 10th highest mountain in the world, in 1970. He awoke one morning to find a few human-like footprints in the snow around his camp. Then, later that evening, he claimed to have watched a bipedal, ape-like creature for about 20 minutes through binoculars as it appeared to forage for food not far from his camp. While climbing solo in eastern Tibet in 1986, the Italian mountaineer Reinhold Mesner confronted a creature that he described as standing upright and moving with astonishing agility. Not sure whether he'd seen a human or another animal, he spent the next 15 years searching across Nepal, Bhutan and Tibet, before concluding that the yeti was in fact a bear. American scholar and veteran yeti hunter Daniel Taylor has spent 60 years tracking supposed yeti evidence across the Himalayas, and he has an explanation for how some so-called yeti footprints can be so large. Much like domestic cats, bears often put their hind foot on top of their forefoot print making an overprint that can quite easily be 32 inches long. During his years of field research, Taylor also noticed that larger prints are typically found on the steeper slopes, where the larger, heavier back feet of a bear going uphill would fall slightly further behind than an overprint on flat ground, exaggerating the size of the compound footprints even more. In the decades since the discovery of the iconic footprints pictured by Eric Shipton in 1951, Michael Ward, who was also on that trip, began to ponder the assumption made by most mountaineers that the prints were made by normal feet. Ward, who was a surgeon, suspected that there could be an alternative possibility. What if the footprints, often identified as being made by a yeti, could be those of Tibetan people? living in the high Himalayas with abnormally shaped feet. In an article published in the Alpine Journal six years before his death in 2005, Ward suggested that in a high mountain community located many days' travel from basic medical facilities, people born with abnormally shaped feet would tend to retain their deformity through their life. But how would a human walk bare feet through snow over 15,000 feet high above sea level without getting frostbite. Sherpa and former yak herder Chetan Tamang from the village of Langtang, Nepal, who featured in part one of this episode, says that while growing up in the 1980s, she and her family possessed no shoes, going bare feet in all seasons. She said that even when she worked as a porter carrying equipment for expeditions, She walked through the snow and over frozen ground this way, protected by a thick layer of hardened, cracked skin, which had developed on the soles of her feet through long exposure to the harsh conditions. Ward also quoted evidence from two scientific investigations, the first of which took place during an expedition he was part of in 1960, which wintered at 19,000 feet in the Everest region. Over the winter, the team had a visit from a 35-year-old Nepalese pilgrim who normally lived at 6,000 feet. He stayed for 14 days and at 15,000 feet and above throughout this period, other than a woolen coat, wore minimal clothing with neither shoes nor gloves. He was continuously monitored while spending four days without shelter, around 17,000 feet high, with night temperatures down to as low as 5 degrees Fahrenheit and daytime temperatures that remained below freezing. The man walked in the snow and on rocks in bare feet without any evidence of frostbite, in conditions, Ward said, where any European members of the party would undoubtedly have become severely frostbitten and hypothermic. Photographs included in the study also show the deformed feet of a Himalayan highlander showing clear similarities with the alleged Yeti footprints. Michael Ward also questioned whether some parts of the Himalayas, where mountaineers have found seemingly inexplicable footprints, are as deserted as foreigners might assume. The area where Eric Shipton took his 1951 photographs was visited regularly by people living in the Rongsha Gorge, only a few miles away. Or could the be another explanation. Could a hominid species assumed to have gone extinct still be living in small fragmented groups in the remote snowy vastness of the Himalayas? Even acclaimed naturalist Sir David Attenborough isn't sure. In an interview in 2013, he said Much like the way giraffes were once thought improbable to Europeans, he believes the abominable snowman could yet be real. A sister group to the Neanderthals, known as the Denisovans, are known to have lived alongside our Homo sapiens ancestors and may even have been interbreeding with them as recently as 15,000 to 30,000 years ago. According to a detailed analysis of the DNA, of people living in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea, published in 2019. Initially, Denisovans were known only from fragmentary fossils found at one site, the Denisova Cave in Siberia. Then in 1980, a large, human-looking jawbone with two huge teeth attached was found by a Buddhist monk who entered a cave on the Tibetan plateau to pray. In 2019, results from the analysis of proteins extracted from the bone published in the scientific journal Nature revealed that this ancient jaw was in fact from a Denisovan who lived about 160,000 years ago. Not only was this the first conclusive evidence that Denisovans occupied the Tibetan plateau, but it also presents the possibility that they passed some of their genetic traits to Himalayan peoples, including successful adaptation to high-altitude hypoxic environments. And some believe they might even still live among them. Over the decades, reports and theories on the Yeti's existence by people from outside the Himalayas have blown hot and cold. In the folklore of the Himalayan country of Bhutan, it's said that the Yeti is real and yet not real, possessing supernatural powers that enable it to appear in a tangible form and then suddenly vanish, so that those who search for it will be eternally doomed to fail. Despite all the legends, the footprints in the snow, and the endless searching, so far The complete truth of the Yeti's possible existence remains, to this day, unexplained. This episode was written by Diane Hope and produced by Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard McLean Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, are also produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained the book and audiobook with stories never before featured on the show is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.